We're taking your questions on mental health in this episode of Ask Hillary McBride. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. What a wonderful and sad week we're about to have on Ask Science Mike. Wonderful because for the third week in a row, we have researcher and therapist and PhD candidate Hillary McBride on with us to answer your questions about mental health. And sad because it's the last of the three episodes. (laughs) So next week, it'll, it'll be back to just me talking alone in a microphone to both my dismay and the audience and... (laughs) Um, but I, I do want to uh, take a moment and jokes aside, I just remind everyone that we are talking about mental health issues this week. Uh, we're going to talk about mood disorders. We're going to talk about bullying. We're going to talk about abortion. Uh, we're going to talk about climate change. So we've got some really heavy topics that we're going to talk about. And I don't want you in the audience to feel some compulsory or compulsory drive to listen to the whole show. If at any point it becomes overwhelming or too much, I want to remind you right up front that you can always pause this episode and take a break. You can skip it entirely. You should do whatever you need to do to feel mentally safe and whole and healthy. If anything in here is too much for you, there is no shame and tapping out and coming back next week when we'll probably talk about particle physics or something. So <laughs> uh, take that as a, a very sincere, yes, a very sincere uh, and necessary trigger warning. And Hillary, I'm just so happy to do another episode with you this week. Uh, I've been sincerely looking forward to it. Mm, me and too. Thank I'm you. Really I've gotten so much like. feedback. Oh, good. Good. Uh, people, people like like where this where this has been going. So, mm-hmm. uh, without further ado, we got five questions this week. Uh, so we'll jump right into the first one. And our first question this week says: Great. I myself and several family members have struggled with mood disorders. I have observed and experienced that with mania or depression, a person's ability to make good decisions or think in ways that are aligned with reality are greatly diminished. I've experienced hypomania and the lack of judgment that goes with it. I understand how these limbic states affect judgment due to reduced prefrontal cortex activity. Ooh, wow. But my question pertains to trauma and flight or flight. Can you talk about how trauma and amygdala activation impact activity in the prefrontal cortex? Also, when someone has been traumatized, are they more prone to making poor decisions from fear or anxiety? Ultimately, are people even able to choose well when traumatized? Thanks, Mike and Hillary, for all the work that you do. Oh, boy. This one's kind of juicy, eh? Um, hey? I'll take a swing. Yeah, a lot of juice. Juices galore. Um, I'll take a swing and then I'd love to hear what you, what you want to add in there. 
Um, so I'm not going to address the part of the question that that mentions hypomania and mania because that's actually different in terms of what's going on in the brain. And manic or hypomanic episodes aren't necessarily caused by increased limbic, limbic activity and decreased activity in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, although those might be some of the observable effects of mania and hypomania. Uh, when trauma happens to us, it changes our brain and our nervous system. There's so much more going on than just amygdala activation, but primarily activation in the amygdala also is related to decreased regional cerebral blood flow to certain areas of the frontal cortex. So when we would normally be able to think through a whole situation, let's just say if we're at rest and we feel emotionally regulated and we can consider all of the factors and slow ourselves down, unlike that, when we're activated, something called an amygdala takeover or an amygdala hijack happens. We move into fight or flight response where decisions are being made more on a subcortical level. Think like instinct and survival, not thorough rational evaluation. And these decisions, uh, although not decisions in the way that we normally think of decisions, they're related to our survival and based on what's happening around us. And this activation can happen sometimes without us knowing that it's happening or why. When the lower brain structures take over and do things without us consciously making the connection, sometimes it feels like we're acting without even really knowing why. Perhaps think of the, the stereotypical example of the vet uh, or the veteran who dives under the table when a car backfires, not really thinking, oh, I'm afraid, maybe I should get under the table, but the body reacting, responding to a perceived threat. And so perhaps a smell in a room reminds us of a smell we experienced during a trauma. And before we make the conscious connection, these deep brain structures responsible for processing sensory memory as they're related to threatening or traumatic situations, those deep, those deep brain structures have taken over. Not always does our thinking or rational brain make that connection though, when sometimes it does. And that usually happens after the amygdala takeover has ended and regional cerebral blood flow has returned to our frontal cortex and our parasympathetic nervous system is engaged. So it is possible to understand after the fact why we did what we did, although it's not always the case, right? Sometimes it just feels like the body took over, we felt overwhelmed and we did things that we wouldn't necessarily, you know, quote, choose, end quote, to do if we felt regulated and present. Now, as for your second question, if people are more prone to making poor decisions from fear or anxiety when they've experienced trauma, or are people even able to choose when traumatized? I think your question is a really interesting one because choice is an interesting thing that we've kind of constructed. And I actually mm -hmm. believe that we have much less choice than we think we do. And so much of what we think choice is, is actually just a story that our frontal, our frontal lobe has made up after some subcortical part of our brain has instructed our body or nervous system about what to do. But the things that appear as choice when we're at rest might better reflect the kind of person we know ourselves to be and what works in any given context. Uh, we know that the corpus callosum and the growth and the integrity, integrity of that structure is impacted by trauma, particularly when trauma happens during development. And this can impact our ability to do emotional regulation, uh, sometimes leaving us feeling dissociated and without emotion or hyper-rational as a defense. Uh, but we know that emotions are really important for decision-making and that in research about decision-making, if we don't have access to emotions, we can't actually make decisions. So it's not that emotions are bad for choice 
or that when the emotion centers of our brain are highly active, that we're not making good choice. It's matter more about how much emotion is there and what structures of our brain are working together or taking over other ones based on what our nervous system thinks is happening in the moment. So what I would actually say is that if your body thinks that you are dying or facing threat, then whatever your body is doing to keep you alive is not a poor choice. Your body is doing everything that it needs to, to help you be okay in the situation. Where it becomes a problem is when our body is responding as if we're in a war zone, but we're actually just at the grocery store. So the choices that we make, the things that our bodies do don't always make sense all the time when we're feeling settled. Um, But in moments when we, yeah, when we're feeling settled and we look back, we think, wow, I would never have done that. But in the moment, these other structures are really taking over. Um, So to increase choice when we're activated, um, that can happen, right? Activated or triggered or re-traumatized or in a trauma or in a flashback. Um, I use those all um, in the same way. But it can happen by building awareness. Um, It's easier to do when our trauma is being treated so that our nervous system is more likely to return to a state of rest. And then it's easier for us to notice, oh my goodness, I feel activated. That feels different than how I felt five minutes ago. Um, So doing trauma work can help us make choices when we're not activated that then build capacity to maintain some skills during activation, like emotionally regulating when we feel dysregulated. And Mm -hmm. uh, we can make choices when we're regulated around accessing resources and paying attention to somatic cues and learning to what to do with our bodies when we feel flooded or when it seems like intensity or these deep brain structures are taking over, but that, that it's a process over time and usually involves at some point going back to figure out why is my body still think that I'm unsafe or still think that I'm in this dangerous environment. So the, the question's an interesting one because choice is actually uh, quite a quite a difficult thing to wrap our heads around. Mm. Gosh, Hillary, that's well thinking? said. Um, I, I just was reflecting as I read the question how much it resonated with me. Um, like you, I, I'm not going to go into hypomania and mania, but for different reasons. I just don't know very much about mania and hypomania psychologically, much less neurologically. Um, but in terms of this notion of the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, that is so often a framework I've used to understand my own life experience. And so like, I just resonate with the question um, and seeking that balance. And I think one thing I'd just like to say, if we kind of step out of maybe psychology for a moment and even... Mm-hmm past neuroscience into evolutionary biology. One thing we find that in mammalian and avian brains, um, energy budgets play a huge role in how brains activate and and how much of a given brain can be active at one time. Mm -hmm. Um, And humans are actually really fortunate because we have very, very large heads. (laughs) And we have lots of, of... cooling capacity in our bodies. We have all these sweat glands and we have a a, a very large and enriched uh, circulatory system that includes a lot of surface capillaries. So our bodies are actually uncommonly good at cooling off our brains. Um, Compare that to say some species of bird who arguably have 
who actually and arguably definitely have more dense uh, arrangements of neurons in their brains uh, and arguably more sophisticated architectures, but their brains can't get much bigger without overheating. That, that strategy is kind of capped evolutionarily in uh, how big those brains can get, whereas our brains have had a chance to take a slightly less dense architecture and scale it much larger. And that's why we talk about the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala in oppositional terms in blood flow. Uh, a, a human brain that ran the prefrontal cortex, quote, full tilt, unquote, to radically oversimplify neuroscience <laughs> and ran the amygdala full tilt at the same time would start to run into some thermal limits and, and potentially increase the temperature in the brain to a point that is unsafe and unsustainable. And that's why architecturally our brain has to make decisions moment by moment about how much blood to send where um, in order to keep itself operationally cool. It's fascinating for me as someone who studied both brains and microprocessors, how often uh, <laughs> thermodynamics are regulating architectural choices. But all that disclaimer aside, I don't want you to make the same mistake that I've made for so long. And that mistake is this. Prefrontal cortex thought equals good. Amygdala reaction equals bad. That's a really oversimplified way of viewing the brain. And also like an insufficient way of viewing our body's responses to not just trauma, but stimulus day to day. We have multiple systems involved in emotional regulation and activation. Uh, and I'm a person who historically my amygdala is pretty dormant because uh, I'm much more likely to, to have a, a moderating uh, dorsal vagal or, or polyvagal response that makes me sleepy or disengaged or dissociated, as Hillary said. And I've always thought the goal of personal growth was to stop all this amygdala stuff and stop all this polyvagal stuff and just keep my beautiful and glorious prefrontal cortex running all the time. <laughs> and uh, that is a very unsatisfying way to live. That's the hyper-rational or intellectualizing uh, view on life that is, is defensive against our own life experiences. I've tried to let go of the notion that rational thinking is good and so-called irrational thinking or unrational thinking is bad. As Hillary said, all the parts of our body and brain are there to help us survive. The important rubric I've tried to move towards using is, are my actions and my beliefs and my feelings adaptive or are they maladaptive? Do they help me live in a way that makes me feel content and fulfilled and connected with others? Or do they make me feel constantly anxious or emotionally activated or dysregulated, to use maybe a better term? Uh, and, and do they make me feel distant from others or even in opposition with people who are important in my daily living? So I don't care what part of my brain is doing something, whether it's emotional or, or rational. I care about whether it's adaptive or maladaptive in my daily living. And when things are maladaptive, I don't judge them as bad. I don't think of myself as foolish or wrong. I know just non-judgmentally towards myself, 
I need to come up with strategies to help my brain-body system respond in ways that are more adaptive. I need to protect and nurture myself in such a way that allows both my prefrontal cortex and my amygdala and my anterior cingulate cortex and my thalamus, my hypothalamus, and hell, even my temporal lobes (laughs) to respond (laughs) in a way that makes me feel joy when joy is appropriate, sadness when sadness is appropriate, anger when anger is appropriate, and above all, intimacy with those in my life who I care for and value. May we all become more adaptive thinkers and feelers. Mm, Beautifully said. I'm so thankful to KiwiCo for sponsoring Ask Science Mike, and I wanted to tell you what that looks like in our house these days. My daughters are 14 and 11, and uh, they love getting their crates, but we actually subscribe twice, so we get an engineering crate and an arts crate that's age-appropriate. And when those come in, my daughters sit down and negotiate about who's going to work on what each month, and they switch back and forth. And this month... Uh, Macy uh, built uh, lights for her room that had a lot of artistic choices, um, like a a string of lights. And she decided to go with this punched foil design with a a crepe paper or a tissue paper in there that gave off a really cool blue pattern from the sides and then unfiltered white light directly below. Um, While Madison worked on a walking robot, she built her own robot. And what amazes me about KiwiCo is how much fun my kids have while learning about science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. I'm seeing the impact of KiwiCo on their schoolwork because they have a practical, hands-on understanding of these subjects that helps facilitate the work they're doing at school. So I think KiwiCo and their Crate subscription is amazing. And KiwiCo wants you to be able to try it completely risk-free. So if you go to KiwiCo.com slash science, they're offering every listener of Ask Science Mike a free, completely free kit mailed to your home so that your child can have an age-appropriate learning experience that's tons of fun and, in my experience, helps your kids set down their screens and devices, and what could be better than that? So again, if you'd like your child to learn more about science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics, go to kiwico.com science, where you can get a free crate. Uh, okay, another question here. And uh, I'm going to just remind you that we did a trigger warning up top, but this is a question about bullying. And I know that for many of us, myself included, these questions and answers are very difficult. Here's the question. I was a very sensitive child and dealt with a lot of the usual bullying a sensitive boy deals with growing up in a small rural town. Over time, I learned to put up walls so that people couldn't hurt me. I reached a point in my early 20s where I did a lot of work to start to take down those walls and build relationships with people in my young adult group. During that time, I experienced a lot of hurt, and the trust I put into people and leaders 
was broken often. Since that time, I feel like I've unintentionally replaced my old walls with really thick skin, where I'm still able to be very open about who I am and how I feel, but without allowing myself to be truly vulnerable or feel any significant emotional connection with people, including my wife. What steps would you recommend to repair what I see as an inability to be intimate with people? How do I have intimacy without triggering these defense mechanisms that I didn't consciously choose to have in the first place? Mm. Yeah, I wonder how many people are going to resonate with this question. It just sounds so human, right? The, the pain of being hurt and then realizing how much it costs us when we feel alone within the within the confines of our defenses and then trying so hard to take a risk to to pull some of those walls down and then being hurt again. It's just, it's so human, right? And so to you who wrote this question, I'm so sorry that it happened, right? that when you, you were bullied, but that also when you tried to risk and trust people that you were hurt by them. And I just have a lot of a gratitude for those defense mechanisms, that they are there for a reason, that they helped you. Um, that the pain of being hurt was likely so acute that the thought of being hurt again was too much. And so our, our brain body system, our attachment patterns, our behavior, it steps in to stop us from being hurt. And one of the things that we often forget about is that our social wounds are extremely impactful for our nervous system, even for our cognitive functioning. I think a lot of us think that being hit by someone, being physically assaulted or hurt is a different level of pain. But the fMRI results show us that when we feel socially isolated, wounded, hurt, ostracized, that it impacts our brain just the same as when we are physically hurt. And, and we have to validate our body's way of responding to those hurts Right? In the same way that if we were hit or injured, it would probably be hard for us to enter a space where we thought we would get hit or injured again. So I thank the defense mechanisms before anything else. And I think we need to honor the way that your system has responded to, to all of that pain. The things that I'm curious about in, in here, and maybe some listeners, um, some other listeners will resonate with this, but I heard you say, or I heard you write, that you took the walls down before. So there is a part of you that knows how to do that, that knows how to take these risks and let people in. You did that with a group of people before. So there is a part of you that knows how to do that. And I'd be curious about if you reflected on how you did it before, if any of those things apply now, or if you need to do some different things. And maybe the only difference is that is that you do some work around the pain and the fear that came up from what it felt like to be hurt the first time and the second time. But if the opening up process is just the same. Another thought that I had was around the difference between transparency and vulnerability and how there is some ease for some people with sharing openly about their life, but not about anything that has any kind of emotional risk to it or any kind of, um, yeah, some vulnerability, some nakedness. 
So I think it's an interesting thing that you're able to notice the difference between sharing about facts about your life or whatever it is that you feel like you can let people into readily. And then the things that are vulnerable. So here are some things that I think can help around building intimacy when we have a hard time doing that. Building intimacy with ourself first can sometimes feel like the safest way to do that. Like in therapy, right? We can practice letting someone else in and have them help us practice paying attention to what that's like. Doing so might automatically bring up some of those defenses. And then you'll be in a place where you can work on them, where you know you're not going to get dropped if you say it feels too scary to let you in. But building intimacy with yourself might mean that that you're honest with yourself. So learning to notice and pay attention to your cues in your body, not that you have to share them with anybody else, but practicing tuning in in a way that's just for you. For example, noticing cues that might say, oh, I feel unsafe or, oh, this is what I want, but I'm afraid to let someone know. And learning to those, learning to respond to and notice those cues with kindness and compassion And then adding in some soothing around the parts when you feel activated or wounded or afraid. A lot of us have resources that we use so well with other people. So if another person that we know is afraid of taking a risk, we know exactly what we would say, right? I think about the people in my life who I love. If they're in in fear, I would say, I'm with you and I'm so sorry. And what can we do? And it's going to be okay. And I'll be with you and let's plan. And can you take a breath? And what do you know for sure? And what is, is the fear about a past wound or is it about a real present danger? And can we figure out the difference? And can we do, do this thing side by side so you don't feel alone in it? And of all of the things that we would normally say to other people when they're in fear, some of those things work when we say them to ourselves. I think we can be aware of defenses when they come up noticing them, that feeling that you have, whatever that feeling is that says, don't let anyone in or the shutting down that happens, noticing those defenses and regulating and soothing, and then deciding if you need those defenses in that moment. Sometimes there is an element of considering the evidence. Is this environment like the one that hurt me? And if it's not, it might be interesting for us to dip our toe into a little bit of vulnerability When people are trying to change patterns with defenses, I think it can be easy to think about doing all or nothing, right? Like I just launch in, I just share everything or I let you all the way into my pain. And often that can lead us to feeling shame or like a a vulnerability hangover, as I sometimes call it. But we might start by just dipping our toe in or taking a tiny little step towards paying attention to our emotions or paying attention to the social environment. And we might notice sensations when we do that, that remind us of when we felt unsafe. And then we can remember that the first time we felt unsafe was in this case when you were bullied. And you might be able to pause for a moment and then talk to your younger self and reassure them and validate that part of you that still feels stuck in that bullying and saying, I'm so sorry that you were bullied. It was so scary. Then it's over now, but it really hurts you. But it makes sense that you're still afraid. And after soothing yourself and talking to yourself, when your body settles down, you can look around and say, are those bullies here? And if not, then maybe the fear is from the past and the pain in the past and not really from the present. But working on healing and trauma in the first place, um, the bullying, but then also the betrayal from later in your life, working on that might help your body know that those things are actually over 
And then your nervous system won't be as stuck in the defensive mode automatically. I mean, the defenses might be there, but it might be easier to remind yourself, I don't need them anymore because your nervous system is actually at rest and it can make it easier to notice then when the defenses come up. Mm. It's understood um, in one of the kinds of therapy that I practice that defenses are a way of keeping emotions underneath like fear or sadness or anger and that the emotion feels unbearable and likely reminds us of some of the aloneness we felt when we were young and had all of that fear and sadness, but there was no one there to help us through it or protect us. So the defenses aren't actually the problem. They're actually the temporary solution to the problem, which can be, I don't know how to feel my pain and I don't know how to be with it and work with it in a way that helps me release the hurt and connect me to others. Emotions are social in nature. They show up in our face and on our face and on our bodies so that we can signal to our tribe what's going on and maybe even signal to ourselves what's safe, what's unsafe, what we like. So naturally, learning to notice what's under the defenses, feelings-wise, and staying with that might allow us to have something to take to people around us, allowing them to have a point of entry into our lives and a way of helping us that leaves us feeling connected to each other. So the situations in our lives that we go through remind us of the past and bring up these feelings. And when we know how to work with them and spot our defenses and redirect ourselves back into the tenderness and presence with the emotions underneath, then we can really begin to experiment with moving forward and see that the defenses were there, but we might not need them anymore. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Coping with the fallout from bullying has been the journey of my whole life from early childhood to present. And the ebb and flow of learning new strategies, growing and dealing with the fallout of that growth and learning to grow again, it is very much the pattern of my entire life. And so I just wanted to congratulate you for being aware of the ways that you have to protect yourself because of the way that bullying affected you. That insight is powerful. And the fact that you can ask, how do you have intimacy without triggering defense mechanisms that you didn't choose in the first place tells me that you're already on the path to doing so. Yeah. And so I just hope that you can take a moment wherever you are right now, whether you're the person that wrote this question or you're a person for whom this question resonated. I just wish you could take a moment right now and celebrate your strength and your resilience and the fact that even though people were so unkind and so cruel to you. You're still a person who cares, mm -hmm. who tries to make choices that benefit you and benefit others, who cares about having intimacy and who cares about healing and growth. I just want you to know that right now from this little studio in Los Angeles, California, I am proud of you for doing so. And 
I'm confident that you will find the growth and the healing that you seek. And by the way, everyone else, don't bully people. Okay? <laughs> Just don't. I see adults bully all the time. It's not okay. Hmm. Yeah, that one hits close to home, hey? Hmm. I, I'm not even sorry for all the trigger warnings. Um, we're going to do a question about abortion right now. So if, if you need to hit pause, uh, this is your opportunity. Here's the question. Abortion is a topic that is not talked about very much, it seems, outside of politics. I'm just going to pause right there and say, yes, absolutely, I agree. <laughs> As someone who got a medical abortion and has kept it from her evangelical family members and many friends, I've been looking for healing resources. It can be a horribly traumatizing experience especially for those who feel they have no other choice. It is often difficult to actually get an abortion, and it is unfortunately very common to be uninformed in the process, for example, not knowing what might come out of their own body, what pain they will experience for how long, or how long the body might confuse a tampon with giving birth. The resources I have found are for repenting, or healing from a regretted abortion. But I just want to know how to begin to heal and that others are struggling from the trauma of getting an abortion that was perceived to be absolutely necessary. Like mine, every person's story of getting an abortion is unique and complicated in so many ways. And I feel even after therapy that the pain of getting an abortion is not getting easier and is not understood or acknowledged in the world. Hillary, what advice would you give to the healing process? And do you know of any books or resources that would speak to the reality of healing from a wanted abortion? Thank you both for all that you do. Hmm. I'm so sorry that the trauma happened to you and that you weren't informed in a way that could have helped you feel better prepared. And I just feel the ache knowing that you haven't been able to go to family and friends in the way I imagine that you long to. The thing about trauma is that it's not defined by an event. It's actually based on how our system responds to what an event was like for us. One event can happen to one person and it can seem totally normal. And the same event can happen to someone else and it can feel like trauma. So while it might seem counterintuitive at first, I actually think it might be helpful to think about this in a way that's less about the abortion and more about how our bodies respond when events that are negative and have an unexpected component to some degree leave us feeling confused, overwhelmed, and powerless. Sometimes if we look for the ways that we are like other people, it helps us have a sense of belonging So you might find that in accessing resources about trauma that makes sense of what you've been through, it actually helps you feel like you're part of a community of people that's experienced something that left them with trauma, regardless of what the event was. Anytime, like I said, that we find ourselves a part of a community, it can help us feel us alone and help us believe the healing that we can have, that it's possible. 
more so than if we think we're the first or only person. I think that it's complicated to experience a kind of trauma that is disenfranchised, um, a kind of trauma that is silenced or dismissed. That's also happening in a socio-political context where you're having to fight for something at the same time. So this, this is a very unique kind of experience, but the way that your body is responding is very normal based on what you've been through. And there might be some things about trauma that help you feel like what your body is doing is actually part of a survival response in a way that can help you feel validated in yourself, regardless of what caused the trauma. And our bodies store trauma way more than our thoughts do. We can form sensory memories that are implicit and they don't actually have a cognitive story attached to them. But as a felt bodily memory, they're connected to the trauma. So as I'd mentioned in one of the earlier questions, this could be smell in the air, a song, a time of day, a position of our body, a sensation in or outside of the body. And all of those sensory elements are stored as an integral part of the trauma memory. And whenever our trauma memories get activated, our nervous system does too. So when a similar sensation occurs, our body remembers that trauma and responds sometimes as if it's happening again. So when you're thinking about the healing process, it can be helpful to access some kinds of therapies that help that brain-body system learn that the trauma is over. Right? When we're doing trauma therapy, it's actually a lot different than doing regular talk therapy. So some of the kinds of therapies that I might recommend are somatic experiencing, sensory motor psychotherapy, EMDR, lifespan integration, and in some cases, actually working with trauma-informed pelvic floor physiotherapists to help your implicit memory change. Now, when you feel yourself remembering the trauma, either thinking about it or feeling like it's happening again, it can be vital to use both compassionate self-talk, saying something like, it happened and it's over and I made it through, or it was really scary, so scary that I remember it sometimes when I don't even want to, and I didn't do anything wrong, but it was so scary. And then trying to ground ourselves in the present moment, using our breath, feeling our feet on the floor, orienting, so looking around to make sure our brain really gets the memo that we're here and not there. But there is this social piece that I hear you mentioning. And so the, the last thing I'll say is about the social context, that women have been having abortions longer than we care to admit culturally. And although there is less stigma now than there's been within the last century or so, it's still something that people do not understand and often comes with shame, even if it's a wanted abortion. Uh, and leaves women feeling alone to deal with challenges, feeling underinformed. So you are not the only one who has had this experience. And I can tell you that because I've worked with people in therapy who have been struggling with this experience of having had a wanted abortion, but then feeling the trauma of it. Um, but because of what's going on socially, it's hard for women to talk about it. So if you're finding it hard to find resources, it might be that there aren't actually any that are easy to get access to. And it might mean that we need more resources or need to find ways to make them more public. And I think your question might be hitting on something really important socially. Sometimes we can also find a sense of healing in knowing that other people won't suffer the way we did. And for some people, I'm not necessarily saying you have to do this or this is for you, but for any of the people who are listening, sometimes there's a call that comes along with healing our trauma about creating resources or shifting social discourse and saying, I don't want any people to have the sense of aloneness that I do. 
So writing letters of complaint to service providers or creating resources that are public on the internet to let people know what's important, what they need to know, and to help other people feel less alone or maybe even to prevent in some cases the thing from happening again. Uh, But women need to be better informed about what's happening during a procedure. And unfortunately, it's a common thing within any reproductive health practice for the healthcare practices to be taken away from women themselves and into the hands of the care providers. So there's a there's a systemic thing that's happening in healthcare for women's bodies. And unfortunately, you're not the only one who struggled with this, but I am so sorry that the context has made you feel alone and has left you without the kind of resources that you deserve when you're trying to heal. So my, my advice would actually be Find some resources about trauma, read some books about trauma and trauma and the body. And there are loads that you can find online on Amazon and in in libraries. And, And my hope is that even though the content is not necessarily specific to abortion, that you would find yourself in those stories and realize that you and your body have been doing exactly what they needed to do to keep you safe during and after a really awful event. I'm so glad you were here for that question, Hillary. Mm. Um, I, I just think it's so important um, that in every conversation involving abortion, that women's perspectives are centered. Um, so I'm I'm not only thankful that you were here, but willing and qualified to answer so adeptly. Mm. Um, and I also want to. Zoom in on that first sentence that you you also spoke to so well. Abortion is a topic that is not talked about very much, it seems, outside of politics. People who identify as pro-life and people who identify as pro-choice have abortions every day. Real, flesh, and blood people for many reasons. Sometimes those abortions are elective. Sometimes those abortions are medically necessary. But they happen. And sometimes people who are pro-life have abortions that are traumatic. And sometimes people who are pro-choice have abortions that are traumatic. And I hope that everyone who hears that question and everyone who hears Hillary's answer can reflect both now and in the future on the reality of the experiences that real people have every day with abortion that aren't theoretical, aren't hypothetical, and are not in that moment political or theological in nature, but a basic matter of life and well-being. I think too often we allow our politics to diminish or eliminate our realization that every one of us is a human person and every one of us is worthy of dignity 
And at least in America, abortion is such a divisive topic that we are too ready and too eager to villainize people who are primarily victimized. Okay, on to perhaps an easier question. Uh, can you please talk about your theoretical orientation as a clinical counselor and why these theories slash techniques resonate most strongly with you? Thank you for being on the front lines of demystifying the therapeutic process. More than anything, the heart of my approach is that I value and cherish people. And that I find it extremely meaningful to be with people who are hurting in a way that helps them heal and see their own goodness. And so I actually tend to look for theories and approaches that allow me to bring that, that into my work instead of trying to fit myself into a theory. I've been looking for a theory that allows me to be me with people. I think that, um, and we know actually that some of the therapeutic factors that heal are the relationship itself over and above theoretical framework and orientation. I mean, there are some situations where we know that a certain kind of theory is contraindicated. Contra we know that a certain kind of theory is contraindicated for a certain presenting issue, but by and large, it's the felt sense of being seen and known that heals. And I'm able to do that best um, when I can be fully me in a room. So I draw heavily from theories that have empirical evidence and try and use an approach that suits the person in the room. I tend to flex to meet with people where they're at and do things with them that I know I can back up with reliable and valid research findings. That being said, um, I try and tend to keep up with the literature. So when there's a consensus in the academic community that's building, like for example, emotional dysregulation as a primary source of psychopathology, and that emotional regulation is learned best when we connect with an attuned and regulated other, I'm going to do that. I'm going to adapt my theory to see where the field is going and where we have the most evidence. Um, for therapists who are listening or social workers, uh, psychologists, theorists, here is some more of the formal language. The feminist, somatically oriented and trauma-informed relational psychodynamic psychotherapy. That's a mouthful. Um, I'll kind of break that down here. Relational and psychodynamic means that I'm attachment-based and that understanding the system um, that, and means understanding that the system that we see is not always obvious to our conscious mind. And, and there are things that are at play while we act and think and connect that we're not always aware of. Uh, so looking at the dynamic nature of the self and the, the dialogue or the dialectic between conscious and unconscious processes that are stored in our nervous system. Neurobiological and somatic trauma-informed means, um, again, that some of the things that are at play that we don't often bring into the picture uh, are the body and how the body stores memory and is the place where life happens, not just in thinking or conscious thinking. Uh, the trauma piece means that I'm sensitive to how the brain changes when we're in experiences once or regularly that cause us to adapt to survive, but can make it challenging to function in the world if trauma or if an old experience is over, but our body doesn't know it's over. And this means integrating the body into treatment and the empirical findings about memory processes and emotion. Emotions are a really big part of what I do in light of what is now this overwhelming empirical evidence about the role of emotion, both in psychopathology and attachment and attunement. 
I understand that learning to pay attention to emotion and, and how to respond to it in ways that are healthy for us and appropriate based on our context is actually what helps us not only heal, but helps us move past dysfunction or pathology into growth and thriving. And we don't often learn growing up that these emotions that we experience are in the body and that they're good. Uh, I also bring in a positive psych perspective. Um, I don't believe that the best we can do in therapy is just reduce symptoms. I think that in therapy, we can also help people connect with their sense of identity and find and stay with joy to learn and deepen their experience of connection with themselves and others in the world. And then kind of on a more meta level, my feminist approach means that I'm looking at systems of power and social dynamics as they relate to our functioning, psychopathology, well-being, and healing. So a person might come in with a presentation of psychopathology, but what is the context within which they're in that has allowed that psychopathology to flourish or is actually caused it in the first place? Uh, what's going on contextually that also stops us from being able to heal? Like a good example of this would be sexual assault and some of the problems around messaging um, around sexual assault and victim blaming, things like rape myths need to be considered when we're looking at how people heal or not. And one of the best ways that I've seen all of these things integrated into uh, with each other is through a practice, something called AEDP, um, exper uh, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, a practice and theory that I draw very heavily on in my work. I also use other approaches, um, but I use this when there is evidence that would be effective for helping a person with a particular presenting concern like EMDR, mindfulness, self-compassion, somatic work, gestalt, or other process experiential uh, interventions, but really anything that can help us have an experience of healing, connection with the other that feels oriented around, it, oriented around growth and the goodness of the person, those are the things that I'm going to choose to use in therapy. So that, was, that was theory heavy as an answer. <laughs> it was wonderful. Oh, gosh, it made me elated not only to hear you say it, but to have known you long enough to understand all of it, even though uh, for me, it took an intense amount of concentration to keep up. Um, so I just want to say to the listeners right now, if you're like, I love Hillary, I'm so confused by all of that. Uh, pay close attention to that uh, for the therapists and social workers right, listening. Yeah. <laughs> Disclaimer yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Was that the deep end of the pool? It um, really is. But so impressive. And I just so appreciate your care for people as expressed by your intention in research and rigor. Hmm. Uh, to not only understand those schools of therapies, but others, and to have arrived at that role, that 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 place out of a desire to best help people, um, you know, find healing and find growth. Um, it's why I appreciate therapy as a discipline so much, and why I think it's so essential. Thank you, Hillary. Mm, you're welcome. It reminded me, this question reminded me a little bit of something that we do as part of a PhD in, in any kind of clinical training program, but it's called a, um, a clinical comprehensive exam. And basically you, you have to identify your theory and then defend it rigorously using all of the empirical evidence that we have in the field of psychotherapy to a committee of, a committee of people who are experts, um, 
using tapes as well to prove that you are doing actually what you say you're doing. And it's a really important, rigorous process that has helped me grow so much to realize what do I believe about change? What do I believe about people? Do I really think we're good? And if I think people are good, how does that show up in the clinical work that I do? And can I back that up with my actual practice? So the process of answering this question um, brought joy to me because it's something that I've thought a lot about and have spent years working on. And um, the, there is an evolution that happens in the process of being a therapist where the things that we think about change and people and ourselves are different when we start the journeys, when we end. And so I imagine if you asked me this question in five years or 10 years, depending on what the current empirical evidence is, my answer might be different. So I think we have to be adaptive and, and to do the best care that we can for people, flex to where the research is um, and what people need. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm, so true. Last one, and it's a doozy. <laughs> Hi, Mike and Hillary. Even before your podcast about climate change, I've been worried about the climate crisis. As you said, panic is good to spur action, but it can be paralyzing. I also have a profound sadness for the people and the natural world that will suffer. I have a wife and two kids, and I know that my mental well-being can influence the whole family. Are there any resources that can help me and others on how to specifically deal with the anxiety and sadness of climate change? Thanks, Aaron. Hmm. Aaron and anybody else who identifies with this, the sensitivity to climate issues is so important. Oh man, too, I think too many of us are living lives unconcerned with the impact of our actions. Um, the care that I hear is underneath the paralysis. Uh, that care is so, so, so good. So I, I want to clarify that panic specifically is not helpful, but fear and fear and panic are different, but fear comes with a sense of urgency or a, a, like a kind of awareness to what's happening around us. Even quite literally our eyes open wider because of what our nervous system does when we're having a fear response. So it can spur us into action if we channel it appropriately. That care about something is connected to the fear and the fear can move us to action. Um, what I'm curious about is if you can connect with the care, if any of us can connect with the care that's creating the sadness and the suffering and what it would be like for us if we saw that the sadness was actually pointing us to our value system. So the sadness was not a means in and of itself or the end in and of itself, but rather the, the flag to us as reflective beings that what we matter or what matters to us is being compromised. I'm wondering as well about the community piece. So when we have these particularly strong values and we feel alone in them, it's really important for us to find community that shares our values. When we're with people or around people who do, do not see the things that matter to us, we can often feel more alone, more paralyzed, more despondent. And sometimes it can polarize our response. So we actually become more full of despair because we look around us and think, oh my gosh, no one cares. I'm hopeless. 
So I'm wondering if there are clubs, communities, nonprofits, volunteer organizations, anyone that you could join with and lobby with, uh, a group of people who you could say, I am a part of them. They resonate with my value system and look at the things that we're doing so that when that powerlessness comes up, you can remind yourself of your action and see, oh, look, the fear did move me to something. Believe it or not, I've actually worked with people in therapy before who've come in for similar concerns that you wrote about. Uh, I tell you that one because you're not alone. And two, because uh, if you're finding the sadness is eclipsing your ability to connect with care as a motivating force and you feel hopeless, it can actually be good to talk about it with someone in a clinical setting, right? When we have these impulses of emotion that move us towards action, if they get frustrated, that it can leave us feeling even more stuck and depressed. So finding a way to connect with the emotion and move it through you and connect with the care and the values underneath can be helpful. And it's okay to ask someone to help you do that. Um, learning emotional regulation can be really helpful. Sadness is not bad. Not when something that is precious and valuable is in jeopardy. Sadness is not ever bad <laughs> and neither is fear, but learning how to respond to our sadness or fear in ways that help us stay in the present and connect to our values and people around us that takes practice and skill. Lastly, mm. when we feel hopeless, it's really important for us to find opportunities to prove our competence and efficacy and to look for where that's already happening. We can focus on how much there is to do and see this huge chasm um, of things that are undone that need to be done and can feel how dire that is. And that feels less overwhelming. This is just a little bit of a cognitive trick, but when we see how much we've already done and how we're giving what we can, sometimes it means accepting the inevitable or accepting our powerlessness, but knowing also that we are doing what we can and we can only do what we can. Um, I love what I heard the mystic Matthew Wright say recently when he was giving a talk. He said, we either wake up together hand in hand or not at all. So I want to remind you that you're not meant to do the work alone and it's not all on your shoulders. And yet as someone who cares about the earth, you have a very important role as a voice in this lifetime to nudge your colleagues, to nudge your friends and family, even the people listening to this episode. I imagine that it's activating them to get to, to think a little bit more about their actions and the earth, but your job might be to do what you can and to move the needle just a little bit to more attunement towards our care for the earth. But hear what I'm saying, that, that the care that is there is so good. And if we can redirect our attention towards that care, uh, that sometimes it can help us understand who we are, what matters to us, and what our calling is in life. Mm. Mm. That's so well said. Um, as I reflect on it, I, you know, it's so similar, the dealing with the anxiety from climate change and just learning to deal with anxiety in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The kind of strategies we learn to be more whole people also help us deal with environmental stressors. In this case, literal environmental stressors, right. yeah. like a changing climate. And then that notion of reflecting on what we've done, you know, uh, every time I get a meal, and it doesn't have very much or any meat in it, I feel good about myself. I know that I'm not only doing something that's good for my body nutritionally, but I'm also 
causing much less carbon to be released into the air. Um, when we make small choices, like, uh, you know, if you're an, an Amazon addict, like so many people are, uh, there's an option now to have an Amazon day where your packages arrive on a single day of the week instead of as they're available in as few packages as possible. That's a small thing you can do that materially impacts the amount of carbon emissions your actions produce. And focusing not only on what needs to be done, but what you are doing, as Hillary so effectively elucidated, does create relief. I don't live with a constant gnawing fear and anxiety about the climate, even though the climate is dire, or at least the impacts of a changing climate are dire. Uh, because I know that I'm doing what I can today, and I'm going to try to do more tomorrow. And that's what I can do. And I can't take ownership for things that I can't do. And I, a single person, cannot halt or reverse human-driven climate change. But I can do everything I can do. And I can try to encourage others to do the same. And leaving that box of paralysis is not only good for our own thoughts and our own feelings and our own quality of life, but actually good for the entire web of ecosystems that are spread across the surface and the oceans of this truly wonderful planet. Hillary. Mike. Thank you. Mm. This is fun. Thank you um, for having me. And it has been so fun. Much. Yeah. I wonder if there are um, places online you'd like to refer people listening to where they can keep track of your work mm -hmm. or any upcoming projects that you'd like people to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty active on social media, Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram handles Hillary Leanna McBride. And on Twitter, I'm Hillary L. McBride. You can find my website uh, for some some more information about me, some speaking stuff I've done in the past or book me to speak, hillarylmcbride.com. Um, I've got two books out. Uh, one's an edited text about embodiment and eating disorders. One's a um, book for the, the lay community, so not academic, which means you don't have to suffer through the jargon. Um, but that's called Mother's Daughter's Embody Image. And I've got a, a book that I'm working on now about embodiment and healing our relationships with our bodies that extends beyond mm. women um, and femmes to all of us as humans. Um, yeah. And then you can hear me on the Liturgist podcast and a podcast that I've done through CBC called Other People's Problems, which is a podcast all about therapy. We actually put mics in my therapy sessions with clients who were, of course, consenting and knew about what was going on and you hear what therapy looks and sounds like um yeah so i think that's i think that's that um i usually update speaking engagements that i have on my website or post about them on social media so you can keep track of me there too well everyone uh, thank you for listening thank you for listening to this series of episodes with hillary mcbride and as always i look forward to talking with you next week thanks everybody yeah.